This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. Today on the podcast, we'll be asking if Russian sanctions are playing into Putin's hands. We'll also be looking at whether Carrie Johnson gets a hard time from the British public. And finally, we'll be talking about why we should all love our cars. First, we're joined by The Spectator's Economics Editor, Kate Andrews, and Elizabeth Braw from the American Enterprise Institute to talk about Russian sanctions. Have they backfired? Kate, in the magazine this week, you write that if the aim of sanctions was to starve the Russian economy and war machine, then it's hard to call them a success. Can you explain to our listeners what do you mean by that? So as one Tory MP lamented to me when I was doing research for this article, it feels as though the European Union and and Germany in particular have pulled all of the sanction levers except the one that mattered most, and that was on Russian energy. And so while you can point to countless sanctions from freezing the assets of oligarchs to freezing central banks' assets of of, of Putin's sort of war chest reserves in the central bank, about a third of that or $200 billion has been frozen, that really key resource, energy, the oil and gas, is still free-flowing from Russia into Europe, and Germany alone counts for about a fourth of Putin's income a day, which is $800 million, so, so close to a billion dollars a day, is going into the Kremlin coffers. Now, it might be difficult for Putin to spend that money because of the sanctions, and no doubt if you are living in Russia right now, you feel like you're on the edge of the global economy because products that you used to buy are no longer in your price range because of the huge inflation, They're not on the shelves altogether because of the embargoes that are stopping goods from being imported into Russia and being exported from other countries to Russia. But Putin is sitting on an incredible sum of money. It's estimated that if oil prices stay as high as they are, he's going to make more in 2022, the year that he pushed his tanks over the border, than he did in 2021. That was not the goal when when the West sent out to to sanction Russia, but that is the position we find ourselves in. So would it be fair to say that sanctions have failed or backfired or is that putting it too strongly? I think it depends on on what aspect you're looking at. So so for example, one positive thing about the sanctions is that as Putin loses his military vehicles, his aircrafts, his boats, he's going to find it increasingly difficult to resupply. Now that's important when it comes to how he's able to continue to advance in in Ukraine and and how the Ukrainians can fight back. So it's not to say that he hasn't been cut off meaningfully from some really important things especially around his his military pursuits. But when, when it comes to competing economies, I mean, Russia's economy is expected to contract by 10% this year. It isn't as if it's in root health. But the money that he has now to sort of sit on and, and ride out some very painful waves is much higher than I think anybody was expecting. Elizabeth, is there anything that the West can do right now to improve how the sanctions are functioning against Putin? Yeah, I think the the, the main thing to remember is that you won't see the effect straight away. And that, that's something that was, was 
clear, I think, to policymakers from the beginning. It's just that we, as a public, often expect an immediate effect, and so we say, well, we imposed sanctions so and so many days ago or so and so many weeks ago, and look, Putin is still conducting his war, so it's not working. I think the effect will will become obvious in the longer term. The fact that McDonald's is now a Russian company with a Russian brand and, a, and, a, and not the McDonald's menu, that may be a little bit exciting for, for Russians for the first couple of weeks. But when all these Western consumer brands are no longer available in Russia as a result of sanctions or as a result of, of just Western economic decoupling, all of that will create a reality for Russian consumers where it's, it's not just the the reality of, of a declining economy that, that hits them. It's also the reality of, of living in this bubble where your life is very different from the life of citizens around you, even in countries like Central Asian countries. They are now better off because they have Western brands access to to the globalized economy in a way that Russia no longer does. And then the other thing we should remember is that particular instances where the sanctions are beginning to bite, for example, and begin beginning to bite very painfully from a Russian perspective. And one example of that is Kaliningrad. Uh, Lithuania has just announced that it will be blocking Russian goods going from Russia to Kaliningrad and and it's blocking those goods because they are under EU sanctions and those goods happen to travel through uh, Lithuania which is the the railway connection to to Kaliningrad and that uh, is very painful for Russia. How else are they going to get the supplies to to Kaliningrad which sits there as an enclave exclave rather all by itself Uh, it can fly the goods in but this railway connection is vital and Lithuania will no longer allow sanctioned goods to travel to Kaliningrad. So I think that's uh, situations like that is where we can expect the Kremlin to get quite upset, not not upset enough to end the war, but upset enough to realize that these sanctions are real and and it will force, I think, some sort of rethink in the Kremlin, Uh, maybe not an end to the war, but maybe different thinking about how to negotiate with Ukraine and the international community. Kate mentioned earlier Germany's position and its heavy reliance on Russian energy, which which does seem to be somewhat undermining the West's position. Is there anything that can be done about that? The German position is really tricky. So the Germans are trying now in the 11th hour to reduce uh, their dependence on Russian energy, which is not easy. The previous government under Merkel made this really quite a logical decision, uh, I I think everybody is aware of, of of, uh, facing out nuclear energy. And so as a result, uh, there aren't really a lot of alternatives to using Russian energy. The the one alternative that's available is coal, environmental sinner of the highest order. And it is an absolute irony that uh, Germany's economy minister and and sort of general super minister, uh, Robert Habeck, is now saying that that Germany will be using more coal power plants. He is from the Green Party and it's just a an incredible irony that, that he has to introduce more coal power to Germany when this is exactly what we should not be doing. But that is the really the uh, one of very few alternatives available to the Germans because they have put themselves in the position of being dependent on, on Russian energy because they didn't want nuclear. And Kate, 
On the subject of Germany, you quote in your piece a, a, a slogan on a placard that was being held by German protesters back in, in February at the start of Putin's invasion, which read, rather a cold shower than Putin's gas, which is in a way a sort of quite bullish statement. But do you worry that, you know, as we approach a possibly very cold winter towards the end of the year, that such sentiments might start to fade when the economic realities of how sanctions have actually negatively affected the West's economics, when they start to kick in? Well, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is clearly very worried about that. And, and that explains the really big difference between Germany's language on Russia and Germany's actions on Russia. I mean, he clearly doesn't think that Germany is ready to kick its addiction. And as Elizabeth points out, they're in a very tricky situation because they're trying to change where they get such a huge amount of their gas supply at the last minute. And they're finding that they don't have many viable alternatives. It speaks a heck of a lot that the Green Party coalition is, is seriously considering reopening the coal mines. We find ourselves in, in, in a very strange situation where the sanctions, which have caused energy prices to spike so high, may mean that actually Europe is more dependent on Putin's gas than Putin is going to be dependent on European cash. Because we didn't go hard on the big things right away, and, and because we've waited for so long to do so, Putin has, has, has managed to seriously increase his profits, and now he is in the position where he might turn off the pipes. You know, Germany may not even get a say in this. There are already reports from Germany, from Italy, that the resources from Russia to these European countries are slowing already. And I, I think that this is, you know, very much a sign of, of what may come. Putin wants to be able to say, I can turn this off at my whim. Look, all this speaks to the fact that the sanctions are clearly hurting Russia. Putin's doing some really crazy, dangerous stuff. You know, he's threatening the food exports from Ukraine's Odessa ports. He's essentially starting to threaten Europe that he might turn off the gas over the winter. This is going to result in many, many people dying from lack of heat and lack of food. And, and he want, he's doing that because he wants the sanctions to go away. So, so there's no doubt it's causing him pain. And essentially, who's going to blink first? Who's going to decide that they can't bear the pain anymore? And I, I personally worry that Western leaders haven't been honest enough with their public about what we've really signed up to with these sanctions. It's, it's not a, I'm not making a, a moral comment about whether or not they're good or bad. Just do people really understand that the economic sanctions are going to hurt at home as well as in Russia? Well, I remember we had this discussion on the podcast a few months ago about how Western governments needed to prepare their citizens for economic pain. Elizabeth, do you think perhaps we are in the West a bit less resilient to economic pain than, than people in Russia are? Well, we've certainly had three decades of absolutely staggeringly convenient lives. Uh, life has become ever more convenient for most of us and it's uh, this is something that I think of as as the convenience trap the more convenient life becomes the worse it is if there is any sort of disruption to that and, and we all panic and and we think it's terrible so for example disruption of two hours of internet access is uh, we feel is is uh, terrible whereas uh, 20 30 years ago we didn't expect constant internet access and so forth but it is really a, a dilemma for uh, leaders of, of liberal democracies sharing with the public that life is good now but don't expect it to always be this good and always be this prosperous 
prosperous. It'll always be this convenient. It's not something you want to articulate because nobody, the public, is not going to to reward you for for mentioning it. They will think you are sort of a, a doomsday prophet, and they certainly won't elect you again. So you'd rather not mention anything and and postpone any communication to the public or sort of put it uh, towards the next government, whatever that government may, may be, and, and hope that the crisis doesn't strike while you are in government. And that's what happened with, with COVID, for example. Everybody, well, every Western government knew that a pandemic was likely, but nobody wanted to tell the public uh, about this risk or what to do should it strike. So this is the situation we are in in the West, that nobody wants to communicate the pain that we as, as ordinary people uh, might have to uh, endure as a result of, of these uh, sanctions. And, and it's not just the sanctions, but as, as, the, as a result of the war too. Uh, but if I can highlight one other aspect of sanctions, which I think has uh, incredible potential, it's individual sanctions. So sanctions against particular Russian officials and their families. And that's and that the family part is an area that, that Western governments are wary of of engaging in simply because you don't want to punish the children for the sins of their fathers or their their mothers but considering how many wealthy russian officials send their children to live in countries such as the uk and how what what an incredible defeat or or, uh, or hardship it would be for those children to have to return to russia i think it would be a quite a powerful tool to show that we have at our disposal uh, because nobody has a right to live in in any other country we we don't have the we as the west are not obliged to give visas it's it's our uh, it's uh, within our gift to give them or not so i think that's an area where we can hurt the elite and as a result the decision making structure of russia in uh, in a way that we haven't uh, really exhausted yet we have banned uh, well we have introduced a number of visa bans but not very many for family members thank you kate and elizabeth Next, we're now joined by Spectator columnist Matthew Paris and Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine to talk about Carrie Johnson's time as the Prime Minister's wife. Matthew, last week you were shadowing the Lib Dem candidate whilst canvassing in Tiverton and Honiton, and you mentioned in your piece that the Prime Minister's wife seemed to be coming up as an issue. How, how so exactly? Well, I asked myself the same question because we weren't there to talk about Carrie Johnson, but... As for Boris, people generally, even people who were going to vote Conservative, said he's a waste of space, he's dreadful and all all the rest. But then they would go on to his wife, which they seemed to want to talk about and say, oh, I don't trust her. You know, she's the power behind the the throne. Uh, I don't don't think that people's wives should involve themselves in politics in this way, that that kind of thing. I I was just interested that people in a rural town in, in Devon during a political by-election should want to talk about the Prime Minister's wife. And I thought they were all being quite unfair. If she does have opinions, I I think she's right to try to persuade her husband of her opinions. She knows more about the environment, more about endangered species than her husband does, and he's not very interested, and she wants him to be interested. I don't think it's wrong uh, for her her to lobby him. She's in a wonderful position uh, to lobby him. It's up to him how much notice he takes and if, if if he just says yes dear and that becomes legislation next week that's obviously wrong but no good good for her i do not know her i have never met her i 
I don't know if I would like her at all if I, I did meet her, and I don't like her taste in wallpaper. Well, so <laughs> but, on, the, on, the, on the wallpaper point, I mean, yeah. perhaps this is frightfully sexist of me to say, but you know, a lot of the various scandals connected to Boris Johnson's premiership, Carrie does keep cropping up in some form of involvement, whether that is the wallpaper scandal or the involvement with Operation Arc, to which we know she had connections and also of course the uh, allegations around the the so-called ABBA party in Downing Street. But you're you're forgetting the third person in that marriage which is Dominic Cummings and many of these stories come directly from Dominic who is very angry and very upset that he's no longer the Prime Minister's you know closest confidant and that his Prime Minister's wife has somehow you know stolen his crown and so a lot of these sort of bitchy stories have been you know are very much part there's there's a whole sort of there are quite a lot of people briefing against Carrie in fact I'd say she's probably more briefed against than any prime minister's wife that I can think of and it's to do with the fact that she is you know she was always political that was always her job even before she ended up with the prime minister and whether or not you approve their relationship that's not what we're talking about here the fact is that that was her job she was a you know she was she was a, a political person she was in politics it was what she did so you know she's got up a lot of people know people's noses and you know some of those people are very effective at you know briefing against her yeah uh, answering your the points that you raise uh, for instance the wallpaper any any spouse can express a preference for some kind of interior decoration, the one who has to decide is the one who's going to have to raise the money for it. And so he could have said no, but he didn't. He said, we'll get a donor to do it. Any spouse could care about getting dogs, faithful dogs out of uh, Afghanistan. The one who has to say no people first is is the Prime Minister. I don't, I don't blame her for lobbying him. I blame him for caving in. And so why, why do you think the Prime Minister is so reluctant to say no to her? Well, have you seen her? <laughs> I, have. Yeah. I mean he's a 56 year old man who's married to a 32 year old hottie I mean but he is prime minister as well I mean should we should we not expect a little bit more well he's still a man but I mean, well I mean he's Boris Johnson remember you know who's quite keen on the old ladies and you know and and I think she's his new young wife. It's very hard for a man to say yeah. no to his new young wife. Or is that, am I being unfair? No, no, you're not. Human nature. You're not. And that's, the, that, that's another thing I admire her for. She is the first woman in, in Boris Johnson's wife to have cornered him. Uh, she's absolutely <laughs> cornered him. Uh, he, he shafted all the others. Uh, well, anyway, I won't go through their names, but there, <laughs> there are a number of kind of mutilated corpses in in. in the ditches along his marital way hmm. and this is the first woman who's a- actually got him trapped good for her <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, he's, I mean he's obviously met his match i think yes you know, this is the thing you know matthew you mentioned earlier that you don't have little connection to carry but I, I couldn't help but notice that your name appears in the back of lord ashcroft's book in relation to your goddaughter who a, a source in the book says carrie was rather awful to you do you think it's fair to say that carrie's not particularly known for her sisterly behaviour towards other women? Well, I, I, I think we must leave those other women to, to be witnesses that themselves. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what my goddaughter would say, but I, I, I know a, a number of people say that they, have, they found her very difficult. And Sarah, do you think it's fair to say that Carrie has made a, f- a sort of fair amount of enemies on the way up? You mentioned earlier that she's obviously a fairly political individual. 
I don't know. I mean, I've met Carrie on a number of occasions and I've always found her to be an incredibly nice person. I mean, I've never had any moments, but she's never been horrible to me. She, she would be she would be nice. Her. She would be nice to you though, Sarah, because you're you're a person of note. A good Am test. I? I oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sarah, yes, of course you are. <laughs> but a good test is um, is how people behave towards those beneath them, as it were. Yes. I mean I think I think that and I you're right, Matthew, I have heard that people have felt rather rather Bruised. <laughs> sometimes with her but but yeah I, I I I just think you have very sort of everything I imagine that there will be a lot of people on the doorstep for example who are not comfortable with the prime minister's mistress becoming his wife in office and then having influence you know he did ditch his wife shortly well, I can't remember what the time frame was but anyway pretty much the same time he, he became prime minister so I think there are quite a lot of people who are unhappy with that scenario just fundamentally do you know what I mean in the in the general public and then I think the sort of you know so the sort of perceived extravagance and all that kind of thing it's not it's not way it's it's not great it's not a great look I think you probably do annoy people inevitably on the way up whether it's intentional or not maybe not but you know inevitably if you're a success and you get to the top then you know you're always going to have a a few enemies. I, I mean, you know, he, she does have quite a big enemy in Cummings. You know, that's quite key in this particular psychodrama. There is something rather male about all this, the sort of chercher oh. la femme. You know, if a man is successful and uh, and, and, and doing well, um, where is the woman and what is what poison is she pouring yeah. in, into his ear? Yes, you, yes, you don't I have mean, it the I other was, way I, around. No, you don't have it the other way around. If a man is, if a man is sort of Machiavellian and successful, then he's mm. considered to be a great success. Mm. Hooray for him! And if a woman does it, then or, or is perceived to do it, then it's the opposite. I mean, I was I was labelled Lady Macbeth over Brexit because I made a suggestion to my husband, my ex-husband, about how he might uh, approach a situation, and you know, just one thing, you know, turned me into this sort of scheming, sort of siren of plotting and planning and actually it could couldn't really have been farther from the truth actually one, just... one, one thing we could say about you sarah is you you were never furtive you were never secret more of a blunderbuss you couldn't find with me but it is it is just a trope i'm afraid and it is it is it is misogynistic because it is assuming that you know women who are not submissive and who you know it's like like that harry enfield sketch woman know your place you know women who have an opinion or who are just getting above their station and that and that these are affairs of men and that females have nothing to do with it and it just it is just it just hangs around like a bad smell you know it was over thus and there's really the thing is about carrie and to an extent about all political spouses at whatever level is that you just can't win because if you don't do anything, anyway, everyone says, oh, what does she do all day? She says, I mean, she's not on any charity commissions. I mean, what, I mean, she's just sitting around. What's she doing? Just eating lime creams at number 10. And then if you do, they go, oh, well, you're using your position, aren't you? You're abusing your position. So what are you supposed to do? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, do and, and, and if you get... What do you want you to do? If, if, if as a 
a, a, a female spouse, you you get yourself onto sort of good works, charity commissions. People say, oh, who does she think she is? Made Lady Bountiful yeah. floating around. Nick Clegg's wife got quite a bit of that. She did a lot yeah. of work for the Northern Children's Hospital and got nothing but, but abuse for it and, and yeah. the accusation that she was manipulating her husband into favouring yeah. the Northern Children's Hospital. You know, I mean, and I, you know, like Samantha Cameron, you know, who, who tried to find the most inoffensive possible thing, which was to start her own design line of designer dresses uh you know spent sort of two years doing a course at studying how to become a pattern cutter and everything quietly beavering away while dave was being prime minister and then when she left and set up her own business everyone was like well okay obviously you're just you know you're just you're just riding on your husband's coattails well i'm sorry mm. am i not supposed to have a career can i uh, sorry am i not allowed to have a job i mean you know sheree blair was a you know like her or not she was a, a qualified barrister what she's supposed to stop practicing you're going to make her wear, wear a sort of gilead style uniform as well just to make sure that everyone knows that she's properly submissive <laughs> well matthew and sarah thank you very much indeed and finally we're joined by juliet nicholson and spectator columnist tanya gold to talk about their shared love for cars juliet in the magazine this week you write about your attachment to your old mini could you tell our listeners what made it so special? My Mini, my Mini. I've had my Mini for 20 years. It is, or was, I now have to say it's agony talking about it in the past tense, but it was my absolute refuge, the place that I went to where nobody else could join me, no one else allowed to join me, when I wanted to cry, think, scribble a few suddenly inspired thoughts all this stationery I might say well maybe not all of it some of it's stationery eat illicit bars of fruit and nut chocolate and sing and sometimes joined when I was singing by whoever else wanted to come and belt out a bit of ABBA and not be judged for doing so so the mini has been my absolute, almost beloved companion for 20 years. And I miss it very much. Tanya, as well as writing restaurant reviews for The Spectator, you also review cars for us, as well as for other publications. Do you share Juliet's view that a car can be an almost sort of sacred space? I think that because we have a tendency to use cars for such pedestrian things that we forget how special they are. Sacred, I mean, that's, that's a great word. I've driven cars that have been mind-altering. The first time I drove an Aston Martin, and it was an Aston Martin uh, DB11 Volante, and I accelerated towards St Just from the roundabout near my house, I genuinely thought that I didn't know that life could be this way. And I just wish, and I've written about this, I drive a VW Fox. I think the rubbish in it is more valuable than the actual car. But I, I, I wish that I could go back to my 21st-year-old self and to say a sports car is not a luxury. It's an essential. And I'm perfectly aware of how awful I sound, to which I only say, <laughs> if you were to drive an Aston Martin DB11 Volante... For the first time at 45, you would understand 
exactly what I mean. These things are extraordinary. Cars are extraordinary. We forget that. And I think if I had to analyse what they give me as a woman, it's a feeling of absolute freedom, but also at the same time security. Because when you're driving a Rolls-Royce Phantom, as I did last week, though I do have to say it's not a city car. It's really when not you, a city you, car. You were driving a Rolls-Royce Phantom last week? Yes, I drove a, I drove a, um, <laughs> a black Rolls-Royce Phantom last week. You rang me. I was in I'm it. I'm listening to this. I'm listening to you with my mouth open in envy. I mean, I'm so impressed that you know how to drive all these things. I mean, oh, they drive themselves. That's one of the great um, uh, complaints of of what is called the real motoring journalism fraternity is that cars are so easy to drive now that they don't really count as cars at all. They, they look after you. I've been in a Bentley, and I probably shouldn't say this, it was a Bentley GT, and the roundabouts, I live in West Cornwall, they're, they're, they're terrible in West Cornwall, and I pulled out at a roundabout in the middle of summer, I thought, oh my God, this is a disaster. I thought, oh my God, I almost just hit something. I'm such an amazing driver, and I thought, oh my God, no, the Bentley stopped it. It stopped It's like your higher power. It's your, it's your sort of, it's not only a place of refuge and safety and so on, but it's actually caring for you. There's a sort of humanity about a car, I think. Yes, well, it's, on, a, it's a car so on the point about and the Range humanity, Rovers um... hate you. They hate you. That's the best thing about driving a half a million pound Rolls Royce is that Range Rovers, who normally look down on everyone, oh God, they look so sad. And they have to get out of your way because you have a 12.4 metre turning circle. <laughs> 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 uh, so, Juliet, on the point of the sort of humanity that, that you mentioned, in your piece, you describe the life's worth of clutter that you've accumulated and the various artefacts that have lived within your mini over the years. I mean, do you think you can get the, the measure of someone by the, by the contents of their car? Well, um, Tanya just said that the stuff in her car is more precious, perhaps, to her than yes. the actual car itself. And there is a sort of weird anarchy, for me anyway, about my car. I mean, I'm incredibly tidy in my real life, horribly, anally tidy, you know, socks and all the rest of it, all paired up. But in my car, it's as if all of that just goes out the window. It just simply doesn't matter. No one's there to judge me. It's not exactly sort of horribly, in any sort of horrible, rotting, stinking way, filthy. But it is full of leaves, full of sort of bottles that I kind of, I don't know what's in them, maybe tiny bit of hand cream that I just might need desperately when I'm at a traffic light. Not that I'm allowed to put on hand cream at traffic lights, I know. But there's sort of stuff in it that nobody's ever sort of going to judge me. There's also pr- some precious things. There's, I, I tend to write, never, never can find any paper when I'm in the car. And so sort of notes for ideas for a piece or for, a, or for even maybe for a book written on the back of a sort of parking ticket, you know, and sort of like just scribbled in a bit of eye makeup writing stuff, but really (laughs) important piece of writing, you know, and that's all in my car. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a sort of anarchic bliss to me to never be judged by what I keep in there. And Tanya, what what could we learn if we were to come into your into your car and have a look at the cluster there? What what would we decipher about your personality? Well, I've never had a car of my own. This is our family car. So I'm going to blame the fact that it is just gross. 
on on uh, on the husband, the son, and and the dog. And in any case, I I know this sounds awful again, but I don't consider this to be my real car. I have a real car in my head, and it's completely pristine, uh, and it's all mine, and no one's ever allowed to go in it. And um, it's either a Bentley GT or an Aston Martin DB11 Volante. I'm not sure, but my own car is is disgusting. And the thing is, if you clean it, it looks no better. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm so with you. You can come into my car anytime you like. That's a real <laughs> invitation, actually, because nobody else gets in, except for the grandchildren for <laughs> the singing practice. Well, I wanted to ask you about the Mini, because I've never actually driven a Mini, but I understand they are very, very, very special cars. They are very, very special cars. The old Mini, the beloved one that has just died, which I have had to replace, was, I mean, it was made in 2004, the year my dad died and while I owned it I became an orphan, a, a wife for the second time, a grandmother and a writer, a published writer. So it sort of had my biography in it. How is it to drive? Automatic? I sort of rather wish it wasn't because I like the... No, 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 automatics are great. I quite like the sort of oomph of a gear. Sometimes I learnt on a gear. I'd like I'd like an oomph for gear, but anyway, automatic. Um, the new one is a bit more zooped up, and um, I can overtake. I I can I can I don't know about a Bentley, but I can I can definitely take on a Range Rover. No question about it. And I do. They don't like it. They don't expect it though. Whizzing up, you know, whizzing along on the. They deserve everything that's coming to them. Uh, my, 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 Apologies uh... to all Land Rover owners <laughs> who are listening to this podcast. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say um, that talking about overtaking, I, I didn't mention overtaking because I'm a terrible driver. And if you ever see uh, someone driving on the A30 in West Cornwall really, really slowly along the A30 in, a, in the slow lane driving a Ferrari, that's me. Yeah, we'll wave. Hi. We'll wave hi. as we overtake. And the first time I drove on a British motorway was in was on was on a motorway in a Ferrari, and I I stayed in the slow lane and I kept being overtaken by lorries, and it was horrendous. <laughs> My father never passed his driving test because there weren't any driving tests in his era in the 1930s. I can't quite remember when they were brought in, but like about 1936 or something, and he just skimmed, as it were, by. And so, therefore, the experience of driving with him was one of sheer terror. He'd never, uh, on a motorway, rather than accelerate to join the traffic, he needed to stop. We are all about to die. Hold on tight. This was the thing. And then we would creep out as kind of not... Well, we would be in the same lane as you, Tanya. You know, we would go very, very slowly in the motorway. So the bar in my family wasn't very... You know, it wasn't very high, so I think I'm a better driver than he is. I did at least pass the test on the third attempt in the back streets of Maidstone. I used to put the handbrake on at every roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> oh, derisive laughter from my colleagues. <laughs> I think you're no, probably no, a much no, better driver no, than no, I am. Lo <laughs> love and, and empathy, really, because <laughs> roundabouts are terrifying. <laughs> they are very frightening places, I agree with you. Well, Juliet and Tanya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Juliet and Tanya. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you pick up the magazine, you'll be able to read everything we've talked about. I'm Nora Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. 
And do join us again next week. Thank you.